0: Ask the rest of you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. We are doing a series in Romans uh, that's uh, we started last year, we've been continuing it in the winter uh, and spring, um, <laughs> where we were looking at this transition that Paul makes right around um, chapter 12, where he talks about not being conformed to the pattern of this world, but instead letting your life be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And that's some of what we just sang about. Uh, So what we're trying to do is is ask the Holy Spirit, renew our minds, show us the places where um, we're still thinking and acting and existing in ways that the the world would be defined by the world rather than defined by the gospel, rather than that are consistent with the, the kingdom of God. So where in the last four verses of chapter 13 would you stand in honor of God's word? I'm going to begin in verse 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Father, we do pray that you would help us to put on Christ us to see more of his mercy to us. Help us to put on more of his grace. Help the world to see more of his mercy and grace in the way that we wear him properly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, please be seated. Paul's using a lot of language uh, that has to do with this contrast between the light and the dark, um, the day and the night and so on. Uh, and in verse 11, he, he talks about how you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. And so he's talking about how the day is near. Uh, we want to look more at that, what it means to love in light of the fact that the day is near. Um, and let's talk about how Paul's using this analogy of sleep. Time has come. Wake, wake from your sleep. Um, I had a, I woke up actually at two o'clock in the morning this morning and it was, uh, I guess you would classify it as a bad dream, I wouldn't say it was a nightmare, but I had a very, very vivid dream uh, that a a friend of mine who uh, is in ministry, um, (laughs) well, I mean, candidly, the dream was that uh, he was caught in infidelity. And it was a very uh, concerning dream. When I woke up, it's, I'm looking at my clock. It's 2 a.m. And I had one of those moments where you can't, I, I was trying to think, did I just dream that? Or I, am I dreaming about something that, that, I'm remem- that I remember that actually happened? And I honestly, I don't know how long it was, but I did not know what was real. Did he really have an affair or not? Was that just a dream? And um, you know, decided, I think that was a dream. Thankfully, I think that was a dream. And I went back to sleep uh, and that was that. But do you, you've had those experiences where you wake up and you're not sure what's the dream and what's reality. Um, and I think that's, the, that, that's what the gospel is pulling us out of, this, uh, this stupor, uh, this sense that we don't really know what's real sometimes, especially when it comes to the way that the, the world looks at life versus the way that the gospel tells us to look at life. Uh, last week, for instance, uh, I want to show you this little circular, um, you know, picture that we were exploring in the earlier verses of chapter 13, where Paul's explaining the nature of love. Uh, he says that love is the fulfillment of the law, and this is what um, this is what Paul is is pointing at. This is where where he's going, and. And he's also calling us to wake up from our sleep that doesn't realize the dynamics, the gospel dynamics of how love and law work together. Because the world is asleep. The world is dreaming a bad dream. The world dreams either that all we're supposed to do is love one another. All you need is love. Love is all you need. And that as long as you have love, you know, as long as you're well intended, it doesn't matter what you do. You don't have to be bothered with rules. You, you don't have to you know, worry about commandments. You just do what feels right for you, what you think is loving, what feels loving you know, to this other person. Um, the, the end result of that is love has no shape, no boundaries. It's actually pretty empty, it's pretty void, it's pretty meaningless. Um, and so what Paul is saying is that love fulfills the law. Love actually keeps the law. Love looks like obedience to the Ten Commandments. Um, and that was what we were looking at last week. So on the one hand, the world's sort of dreaming this, this um, you know, mirage, this, this, this falsehood that love doesn't have any constraints. But, but then pause, and, and I'm doing a little bit of review because it's setting us up for, for the, um, what we're looking at in these verses Jesus was not extremely fond of the way that the Pharisees were doing life if you remember, you know, some of those stories. And the Pharisees were I mean they were the ones who had the reputation for keeping the law. So if love looks like keeping the law, what why did Jesus have such an axe to grind with those who were keeping the law? Well, because they weren't loving as they were keeping the law. Their hearts weren't in it. Well, if if their hearts were in it in any way, it was really just a very self-protective, self-interested kind of way of looking at life. Because what the Pharisees were doing was thinking, well, I'm going to keep the law. I'm going to do the commandments in order to impress God, to look good in front of God, or to look good in front of, you know, those around me, have a very moral, upstanding reputation in the world. And that just means that you're doing the law for yourself. You're keeping the law for selfish reasons, rather than the law being intended to bless your neighbor, to love your neighbor, and to love God. So the right way Paul is explaining to to work this circle is that you keep the law when you're loving well, when you're keeping the law for God's sake, not yours, when you're keeping the law for your neighbor's sake, not yours. Not because you're trying to earn a righteousness of the law, but because you're trying to love God, and you're trying to love your neighbor. And you just keep working that circle. That is the reality of the gospel. The world doesn't know that. The world is asleep. The world thinks that the way that you love is just to feel loving, or the way to do the law is to you know, do it for yourself. And the gospel is pulling us all out of that dream. It's saying, wake up. Wake up from your slumber. Wake up from your, your bad dream. Wake up from this enchantment. I like how C.S. Lewis puts it in The Weight of Glory. And he says, Do you think that I am trying? To weave a spell. Well, perhaps I am, but remember your fairy tales. Spells are used for breaking enchantments as well as for inducing them. And you and I have need of the strongest spell that can be found to wake us from the evil enchantment of worldliness which has been laid upon us. And it has been laid on thick, especially when it comes to what is love like? What's the real nature of love? It's not a bouquet of roses the real nature of love is actually keeping the commandment. How do you keep the commandments? Is it for self-purposes, self-fulfilling purposes, so you can impress God or impress your neighbor? No. It's to love God, to love your neighbor. And it's, I mean, I I don't know about you, but it's very, very um, easy for me to slip back into that worldly way of looking at love, the worldly way of looking at the law, and the gospel keeps pulling us out of that. So one of the ways, now getting to uh, our, our text here, one of the ways the gospel pulls us out of that is to remind us that the day is near. What is that day? The day of Christ. The day when God comes a second time, when Jesus returns, when he came the first time, he came to remove the penalty for sin. That's what he did on the cross. Uh, he gave us his spirit to, to remove the power of sin. And that's what he did when he regenerated us. And when he comes again, he's going to come to remove the presence of sin entirely. And what that looks like, you know, when you look at Paul's language, is he says that you know the, the time that our salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Let us cast off, you know, the works, the deeds of darkness. Paul is is saying that, you know, where we are in history, where we are in the universe is this, this dawn, uh, where we look off to the west and the sky is still dark, you can still see Jupiter, you can still see the moon, and you look off to the east and there's a glow over, Mount, uh, over Afton Mountain. That's where we are. Right in between the, the, the night, which is far gone, and the day, which is at hand. But when you read Paul sometimes... Uh, especially in places like 1 Thessalonians 4, you start to wonder, what did Paul think about when that would happen? When would that day come? Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4:15, Paul says, we declare to you uh, by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left, until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. You know, you hear Paul's language of, you know, we who are alive, we who are alive. There's plenty of scholars, plenty of commentaries you can go to that read something like this. You know, poor Paul got his hopes up, just like those Atlanta Falcons fans a week ago. Got to feel sorry for him. Too bad, he didn't really understand, uh, you know, what, you know he misread the tea leaves, whatever. And, and so they're, they're thinking, you know, that, that Paul was, you know, wrongly imagining, okay, it's any second now, any second now, I know he's coming, and then, you know, Jesus, Paul dies, and 2,000 years later, here we are. Was that what Paul's thinking was? Well, all right, so I'm not saying that you, it's not a, 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 a conclusion that you know, you wouldn't naturally come to. I can see where that thinking comes from. But that's not the only route to take. um, Because what did Jesus tell us? Paul was a disciple of Jesus. And Jesus tells us, watch and pray. You do not know the hour or the time. Paul didn't know if the Lord was going to come back in his lifetime any more than you or I know if the Lord is going to come back in our lifetime. What we, know, what we know is that there's two ways to look at the return of the Lord. We can think about it, um, we can think about it chronologically, and we can think about it um, sort of sequentially. So chronologically, it goes something like this, and, uh, and I, was, I was thinking about this when I put the greeting on the front of the bulletin, that uh, when, when we look at our lives, the older we get, you know, kind of the faster time seems to travel, like, you know, hey, I just, it was my birthday like a week ago, uh, even though it was back in October. Um, Or, boy, I can't believe it's our anniversary already, honey. Um, And and the older you get, I think uh, just uh, the faster that goes. I mean, do you remember when you were a kid and you were waiting for your birthday and it was just like, oh, my gosh, this is a decade um, until I get my presents? Um, And Lydia starts thinking about, she's our 10-year-old, she starts thinking about her birthday, like, December 26, and her birthday's in March. Um, So that's just that kid perspective and we get older and time moves faster, and is it not conceivable, I'm just throwing this out there for us, is it not conceivable that the world on a global or even a cosmic scale operates very similar to how we work on a personal scale? That when that trumpet does sound, when the Lord does return with a shout, with the command of the archangel, when, when, when the day does come, doesn't, isn't it conceivable possibly that the entire globe, the world itself, will look back on you know, the 2,000 or however many years since the, the first coming of Christ and go, wow, that was quick. Where did all the time go? Almost in its, in its age, you know, in its... Uh, in its infirmity even, you know, just going, wow, you know, those, those millennia went like that. So maybe chronologically, we can think of it that way. But more importantly, and I think this is really where, where we have a true biblical foundation for thinking about what, what did Paul have in mind? I think he meant sequentially. Uh, this return, this day is the next step in God's purposes for redemptive history. This is what he's doing next. That what happened was, you know, creation, fall, um, expulsion from the garden. God sends the prophets. He gives the Ten Commandments. He, he leads his nation out of exile, out of Egypt, and then forms them into a nation. And he prom- makes promises to them. And then he gives them Jesus, and Jesus comes. And it's the incarnation and his ministry and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. And then the Pentecost and so on. And do you know what's next? The return of Jesus. Any of y'all play Texas Hold'em? You know, I happen to have a deck here. So Texas Hold'em goes like this. You get, you get two cards, you know, these are your cards. Nobody else sees these cards. So you play these cards with the other cards that are dealt up. So, you know, you get the flop, three cards. And what do I have here? I, I've, got a, I've got a jack of hearts and a two of clubs, you know. Those, those are mine. And on the table for everybody to play is a queen of hearts, a six of spades, and a ten of hearts. And I'm going, hmm, jack of hearts, queen of hearts, ten of hearts. Well, that's interesting. All right, now the turn. Sixth card, king of hearts. This is looking good. Jack of hearts. Well, ten of hearts, jack of hearts, queen of hearts, king of hearts. The last card is the river. Guess which card I'm hoping for? The ace of hearts. Royal flush. On the river. This is the last card. This is the final card. This is the winning card. Nobody can beat this card. Nobody can beat this hand. And that's what's coming. And Paul's mind, as he's thinking about the return of Christ... Nothing in all creation can stand against Christ's power when he returns. He is the king. He is the judge. He is going to not only remove sin's penalty, not only remove sin's power, but remove its presence entirely by virtue of his authority, by virtue of his power, by virtue of his his being God with us. And that's this picture that we're given of the return of Christ. It is next. There's nothing else that we're waiting for. And it could come any time. When, um, when Cranfield uh, writes in his commentary on Romans, he says that the, the true explanation of Paul's anticipation, you know, we believe, is rather that the primitive church, uh, the early church, was convinced that the ministry of Jesus had ushered in the last days, the end time. We're living in it right now. It's dark in the west, and it's you know, dawn in the east, and we're in, the, in between time, and the next card that God's going to play is the ace of hearts, and that's our hope. That gives us tremendous confidence. What we're living is, well, we're being caught out of the, the nightmare, the, the bad dream, the stupefaction, the, the, the disenchantment of the world, and into reality, uh, this reality that, that Paul is expressing here. So therefore, what do we do Paul's saying, put on the armor of light. Live as if you were living in the day. Let us cast off the works of darkness. And then um, when he describes the armor of light, he kind of gives us a better picture of it in verse 14, where he equates it with putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the armor of light. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Putting on Jesus Christ is, you know, basically the shorthand way of saying become like the people that God has adopted you to be, his children. He's our father. We're going to take on the family likeness. Um, A lot of times when people who are in church, maybe all their lives, or maybe they, they were in some Uh, campus organization, or went to a crusade or something, and they heard this message of Jesus coming to forgive our sins. And that's exactly what he did, of course, on the cross, dying in our place, taking our sin on himself. Our sins were transferred to him. And when he died, he died God's just penalty for our rebellion, for our Idolatry for our murder for our adultery for our perjury for our coveting uh, all of, you know you could write down the list and that's what Jesus was suffering for taking the place of you and me and and everyone who calls on Him to stand in our place and to take sin's sentence off of us and onto Him and when we get that when we go oh when those you know dots are connected, you see that Jesus is your savior, and generally the conversation is something like this, do you believe that? Yes. Well, are you ready to pray and receive Jesus as your savior? You know, yes. Good. Now he's your savior. Now you know that when you die, you'll go to heaven, and that's where a lot of people leave it. That's a glorious truth, we are immortal beings, and there is one of two destinations for every human being on this planet. You've never met a mere mortal. We're all immortal. We all have eternal souls. And so it's either heaven or hell. I want to go to heaven when I die, of course. You do too. Everybody, you know, says they want to. But that's not all that the gospel is, because Jesus doesn't just come to us as a savior. He comes to us as a king, as a lord. And he says, now that you've, you know, believed in me to take your sins away, believe in me to make you a new creation. Don't just trust in me as your savior, trust in me and follow me as your Lord. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 3. uh, For as many of you as were baptized into Jesus, into Christ, have put on Christ. You know, that more language of putting on Christ. Earlier in Romans 8, Paul said that those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son you know, to become like Christ. Um, God saved us, yes, so that we can go to heaven. Jesus saved us so we can go to heaven. So that we, but also so that we can start acting like heaven's citizens here on earth. That's why we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a very personal prayer. It's a prayer that we pray. The reason why we're called Christians um, uh, is that language means little Christ. You're putting on Christ. And this is, this is the dynamic that you see in John 8, right? John 8, at the end of that chapter where uh, these lawyers and the Pharisees drag in this woman, uh, half naked, probably covered in, in a sheet or something, uh, where they dragged her from the scene of her adultery, of her sexual immorality. And they pull her in front of Jesus and they say, what would you have us do with her? We caught her in the act. We've got plenty of witnesses. Now what? And Jesus pronounces... Her forgiveness, woman, where are your accusers after, you know, they all scatter because he exposes their hypocrisy, you know, which of you is without sin? Let, let him be the one to cast the first stone. And they leave and Jesus pronounces her, her forgiveness. Where are your accusers? You don't have any more accusers. You're clean. But that's not where you left it. He told her, to rise. And go and sin no more. Don't just receive my forgiveness. Receive my love. Receive my life. Put on Christ. Exchange that for the, you know, the sheet of sin and put on this robe of righteousness. So this is Paul's language about putting on Christ. And he says this because the day is near. Because that day is imminent. You know, it could be in our lifetime. We don't know, but we do know it's dark in the West but it's dawn in the east. And here we are right in the middle. So Paul says, make no provision for the flesh. Don't, don't be content to just receive God's salvation. Also receive his life, um, receive the life of Jesus. Don't just you know, go to heaven, but become a citizen of heaven. Um, we've been saved from hell, so we're not supposed to act like hellions. Uh, and he gives a bunch of different um, couplets here in verse 13, put off the works of darkness. Don't live in orgies and drunkenness. Don't live in sexual immorality and sensuality. Don't live in quarreling and jealousy. So if you were to um, take those couplets and you know, divide them up, basically he's saying, uh, say no to substance abuse, don't abuse sex, and uh, don't abuse people. This is, this is a picture of the armor of light. This is a picture of Christ-likeness. Make no provisions for the flesh. Um, when we make provision for the flesh, what does that mean? Well, it means that we're leaving a chink in our armor, this armor of light, the, the putting on Christ. We'll put on, you know, most of Christ, but I want to leave this little area exposed because I really like my drink. Or I really like to look at naked women or naked men. Or I really like, you know, to sleep with my boyfriend or my girlfriend. Or I really like to flirt, you know, with this other person at work even though, you know, my spouse is at home. Uh, these little chinks in our armor, these little allowances for, you know, I, I just, I'm enjoying that aspect of the darkness. I'm not ready to leave that behind. Paul's saying, you've got no business with that. Make no provision for that. So, you know, is generally the case, people ask, well, how far is too far? You know, how, how close to the edge can I get before um, God says back away? Well, coming right up to the edge is probably not the wisest thing. And you and I have to figure out, based on your personal temperament, your background, your experience, well, what's a safe place for me? So abusing substances like alcohol, do you know what your tolerance is? Do you know that point at which you start getting a little fuzzy, you know, and, you know, I'm, I'm just buzzing. Well, buzzing is drunk. And the Bible says, be under the influence of the Holy Spirit, not under the influence of your, you know, wine or beer or whatever it is. So, is that one beer? Is that two beers? Is it one glass of wine or two glasses of wine? I mean, I, I'm here to tell you, I would be strongly concerned if you think, well, my tolerance is a half a glass of wine or a full, you know, bo- I and mean, half a bottle of wine or a full bottle of wine or a six-pack or something like that. Um, maybe because you know you're abusing alcohol, you sort of learn how to how to deal with that, but. You know, you, you need to talk to people who know you well and who can help you figure out what does it look like for me to make no provision for the flesh. You know, same with sex. Um, if you're dating, you know, what is, wher, where is the line to which you start feeling, like, I'm getting too close to the edge. And you've got to know and you've got to be okay and, and decide and determine, all right, you know, after... After 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock or midnight, you know, just nothing good's going to happen after midnight. You know, tell your boyfriend or your girlfriend, bye. Send them home. Um, And if you're married and there's somebody that catches your eye and you know that you're tempted to flirt with them, you've got to determine, I'm just really going to have to avoid conversation with that person. Uh, And so it goes. Um, You know, you not making provision for the flesh is not the same thing as putting new laws in the place of the the laws that exist. That's what the Pharisees were doing. Instead, it's applying wisdom, the wisdom of the gospel that says, make no provision for the flesh. Don't let there be a chink in your armor. And what about this thing of no quarreling and no jealousy? Making provision for the flesh where, you know what, I kind of, I get a kick out of telling people what I think. I I feel good when I'm angry and when that adrenaline is pumping and I just let somebody have it and I tell them like it is and then I back away and it's like, hey, I'm just telling you the truth. It's just the truth. Look, stop using the truth as a weapon to hurt people. And make no provision for the flesh. When you feel your temper rising, when you know those words are just about to come out of your mouth, you need to back away and dial down and go to your corner, cool off, and then re-engage in a way that's governed by the gospel rather than by, you know, this worldly way of doing conflict. Making no provision for the flesh requires wisdom. It actually requires somebody else. It requires community. It requires fellowship and friendship. You and I were not designed to do battle with the, with the enemy and with darkness by ourselves. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it like this. Sin wants to remain unknown. Uh, it shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. This can happen even in the midst of a pious community. In confession, the light of the gospel breaks into darkness and seclusion of the heart. The sin must be brought into the light. The unexpressed must be openly spoken and acknowledged. All that is secret and hidden is made manifest. It is a hard struggle until the sin is openly admitted. But God breaks the gates of brass and bars of iron. Psalm 107. Bonhoeffer is saying that you and I don't have the power. We weren't designed To do this on our own, we need brotherhood. We need a confessor. We need somebody to to confess to. Um, That somebody for me is Don Ward. He's a pastor in Charlottesville. You've heard me talk about him before. Every two weeks, we're FaceTiming each other saying, how are you doing? How's your marriage? How's your purity? How's your devotional life? And we we ask those questions. And we gave each other permission. We gave each other a hunting license. You can ask me any single question that comes to mind. And I'm going to tell you the truth because I know and he knows I, I need people like that in my life to help bring my sin into the light so that I'm not messing with it and making an allowance or provision for the flesh, you know, hiding it in the dark. Um, I wish I can say that made me walk on water, you know, as often as I'm talking to Don, I'm good, no more sin, you know, no, that's not the point. The point is that we're living in community and friendship and fellowship where there are people in your life who you have said, you can ask me anything. And I want you to know me that well. Kathy has the same, my wife, you know, she asks me anything and I'll tell her. And if you don't have that kind of friendship or that kind of fellowship in your life, you know, okay, you know what to do after today's worship service. Make it your prayer, make it your point. I, am, I have to find that person whom I trust who's mature, who knows the gospel, who's going to remind me of what Jesus has done for me when I confess, when I bring that sin out into the light. And they're going to do the same for you. And you're going to be that, that person who declares God's grace to them. And that's, this was the model that the saints have used you know, for centuries. Bonhoeffer is just you know, making it clear uh, in his book, Life Together. Um, let me conclude by just kind of reminding us that, okay, Paul says to put off, you know, um, drunkenness and sexual immorality and quarreling. And so that's, that's typical stuff for, that we expect, typical morality that we expect from the Bible. If you're new um, to the church or new to the Bible, you sort of expect that do not do this, do not do that, that kind of stuff. But that's, that's necessary, but that's not all that the Bible says. Because it's, it's one thing to say, oh, I'm going to stop doing that. It's a whole other thing to say, I'm going to start doing this. I'm going to put on Christ. I'm going to walk properly as in the daytime. Uh, And what Paul is saying is, you see that light over Afton Mountain? Live as if you were on the other side of Afton. Live as if you were a citizen in Charlottesville, where the light's already dawned, where the morning has already come. And when we start living the life that we will live in perfection and beauty and glorification to the best of our ability, when we are trying to rid our lives of sin's presence, not just its penalty, not just its power, but its presence, by putting on more of Christ, then we start to, to really let people see Jesus. They see heaven on display in us. They see Christ on display in us. Paul earlier, you know, what we were looking at last week was talking about owing no one anything except to love each other. That love fulfills the law, that we have this debt, this unpayable debt to love each other. And the only way you and I are going to embrace that obligation is to receive the love that Jesus has for us. To see how he kept the law for us. To see how he uses even, real quick, let me run down that list of three things. Jesus used wine properly lovingly, and to look at everything like, you know, alcohol that way. So how did Jesus do that? Well, he used it to show hospitality. He used it to show fellowship to um, his disciples. He used it to point them to God. The promises of the prophets, the wine will drip from the mountains. He he held up that cup at the Last Supper and said, this this cup is a new covenant in my blood. And ultimately, he showed us, you know, the, the sacramental nature of that. Jesus used sex properly, lovingly. And you um, <laughs> he was celibate. How did he use how did he use sex? All right, so in the way all of us use sex in one way or another. And Jesus was using sex by practicing his own purity, promoting that in others, but pointing people to the sanctity of marriage, to this really remarkable um, practice of sex between two very specific neighbors a husband and a wife it was the only that's the only neighbor you're supposed to love that way sexually is your spouse so Jesus would affirm that and ultimately you know as you think loving your neighbor and loving God he was pointing out that sex is a picture it's a, it's a parable of the union the intimacy that God has with his people He loves us that much beyond sex, beyond that kind of union. That's the union that God has with his people. And Jesus even used conflict to love us, to love God. And he showed us that it's not, conflict's not bad. Conflict is good. In fact, it's, it's how we do conflict that can be sinful or wrecked or or actually very beautiful because Jesus would show us that without moving into conflict and and gentle gospel-led confrontation, you'll never experience forgiveness. You'll never experience repentance. You'll never experience restoration. Sin's inevitable in our relationships. What do you do after you sin? And you're willing to move into conflict in a gentle, humble, loving way. And that's how Jesus did conflict. Always seeking to restore, to understand, and to repair the relationship rather than read somebody the riot act. And he used conflict to advance the kingdom of God, to love God. People, the hardest lesson I had to learn um, back in 2001 (laughs) down the road at Rockbridge Young Life Camp, where we were having a church-wide retreat, and the speaker there said, the kingdom of God cannot and will not advance without conflict. And for a conflict-averse person like me, that wrecked me. But it's true. It's the armor of light. Literally, it's the weapons of light. We're in a battle. The, night is waging, the darkness is waging war against the light, and the light is waging war against the darkness. But guess what weapon we have? You're going to win. Do conflict well, along with all other things, and put on Christ. Let's pray. Father, we ask uh, for help in putting on Christ uh, because this doesn't come natural for us. Um, and a lot of times we'd rather just roll back over and go back to sleep and dream the same dreams that the world dreams and live life that way, uh, which is very destructive and doesn't show the world your glory. So please give us power, give us grace, give us strength to glorify you, to honor you and how we live and um, what we put on, what we take off. Um, Lord, we pray for grace even to do things like alcohol and sex and conflict well, in ways that are governed by the gospel by the kingdom of God. And Lord, uh, for those of us who are still trying to connect the dots and figure out what does Jesus mean in uh, in terms of Savior and Lord, please uh, give them faith, give them the grace to see uh, the glory of salvation that Jesus gives us, the glory of a new life that he, he offers to us. And Lord, for each one of us who have received that life, help us to walk faithfully in it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank